1901, a woman by the name of Annie Taylor climbed into a barrel so that she could ride that barrel over Niagara Falls, the first person to do so. The reason for her crazy endeavor? She was struggling to make ends meet, and she was hoping for fame and financial security. It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage, a faith and family mortgage team that tries to improve your financial outlook without having to ship you over a 170-foot waterfall. Our mortgage team happens to be an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender, which means our company gets to use its own money and make its own decisions within its own walls. There's no middleman. This advantage often allows us to get you a better rate, which can save you monthly and lifelong money through a refinance, or help you with a cash-out refinance, cashing out some of your home's equity to use for life. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. Yeah, open line chat starts now with Dr. Steven Sanchez. He's standing in for Michael Rydelnik. He's professor of Bible at the Moody Bible Institute, and he received his Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written tons of books and articles, and he knows what he's talking about. Good morning to you, Dr. Sanchez. Good, good morning. It's great to be back with you guys. Well, it's always a, a pleasure to be with I, I heard a rumor, though, that this past weekend you hung out on the Moody Bible campus for a little bit longer. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. I went back in on a Saturday for Candlelight Carols. Candlelight Carols is our annual Christmas production. Uh, the music and media arts majors, all the drama majors, all the musicians, the chorales, the, the ensembles, the or orchestras, all working together to produce just a fantastic worship experience centered around the incarnation. It really is moody at its finest, other than the classroom, of course. But it's moody <laughs> at its finest, and uh, it was fantastic weekend, yeah? Really good. I really wish I could have been there. I got a little taste of that at Founders Week. So, wow, I can just imagine what, what that evening was like. Yeah, the campus is all dressed up. There were stalls uh, selling Christmas things that uh, help mission organizations around mm. the world. There was free cookies and oh. hot chocolate and coffee, and campus was all dressed up. It was, it was a great night. A little jealous. Uh, yeah, sounds yeah. wonderful. <laughs> Drive yeah. on over. <laughs> It'll take me a couple days, but I'll be there. It'll take yeah, ten hours. <laughs> well, you're hearing the voice of Dr. Stephen Sanchez filling in, of course, for Dr. Michael Rydelnik on this edition of Open Line Chat. And you've got a question, uh, he's got an answer. Text it into us at 423-629-8900. And Stephen, we've got a holdover question from last week. So this is um, for you. It's talking about pastor salaries. And so they say, I, I realize that a pastor's salary may be determined in different ways by churches, but I was wondering if some churches sometimes use scriptural references to determine how much money to use from tithes and offerings to pay their pastors. So if so, what scriptures would they be using? That's an interesting question. I've, I've, I've never heard anybody use a particular verse. For example, you know, you should give two out of three dollars or one out of three dollars to, to your pastor. What, what I could see somebody saying is, the the uh, the efforts to pay a pastor should not be begrudging and i'm heading for this into the old testament leviticus deuteronomy where those temple workers are paid as it were sustained by the gifts and sacrifices and offerings that people bring to the temple and israel is reminded not to ever forget those guys don't forget the levites in addition to the widows the orphans and the strangers 
they are sustained by the ties that people bring and those ties should be brought joyfully. Mm. And that's the idea that we see in the New Testament, right? God loves a what? Cheerful a cheerful giver. giver, a cheerful giver. And so if you I think if a church, a group of leaders are deciding their pastor's salary and they're thinking to themselves, "Man, how do we give this guy as little as possible?" I think that's a problem. I think they, that that goes against the spirit of taking care of workers who are doing things that you can't do for yourself, and they are working with you for you for your benefit, right? The 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 elder who works well at teaching and and lead that person is worth worthy double honor. The the sense mm. is be generous with those men. Now let's be careful, right? Many mm -hmm. of the, we have examples in recent history in evangelicalism of leaders, pastors living high on the hog. I mean, like really going overboard. I'm not talking about that. We're not talking about setting up your pastor, your elder in a mansion. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense in which sometimes pastors feel like, man, I, I'm barely making it here. Mm -hmm. And the church could do better. I think that I, and there are others where they cannot. My dad was a pastor in New York City in Brooklyn in the 80s, 90s. He's still there. It's amazing. 52 years of being a pastor and with my mom. And look, it's not a wealthy church. He said he lives by the, the gifts that the Lord brings in through people all over the country. And, and you say, okay, that's fine. But that's not the case everywhere. And so joyfulness, cheerfulness of giving, not forgetting the Levites, I'd lean into that rather than trying to find a verse that determines the amount. Okay, so the principle versus uh, exact direction. And I was gonna, I was just thinking about this on the opposite end of that. You can kind of set your um, pastor up to be kind of a king and go overboard. There are some congregations that go overboard, like you're saying, a mansion and a jet and all this stuff. You know, Rolls Royce, whatever. That you know, I don't know that that's in scripture. Well, that's a great point. Like, it, depending on the church culture that you're a part of, sometimes the pastor is the man. Mm -hmm. And and my identity as a parishioner, as a congregational person, as a member of the congregation, is sort of bound up in what well, my pastor has to look a certain way. Mm. That's my identity. I I really don't see that in scripture either. Mm -hmm. Some of that is cultural, and all of our cultures, when we come to the Word of God, they probably need to be adjusted a bit to come in line with what God is saying there. Okay, yeah. you're hearing the voice of Dr. Stephen Sanchez. He's answering your questions. Open line chat is underway. If you've got a question, you can text it into us at 423-629-8900. And uh, Stephen, we do have one other question here for you that I'd like to share. It's talking about um, contentment, and, and the question is pretty straightforward. How can I cultivate contentment specifically in my need for financial supply? Turn off the Internet. Turn off the TV, put away all the magazines, mm. anything that that cultivates in you a desire for more. Those things work against the soul. I remember mm. when I got my first computer in college and I immediately canceled. I don't know where this came from. I think it came from the Holy Spirit. And I immediately canceled my subscription to Macworld because every month Macworld comes out and the new and the latest and the greatest are on display. And I could feel it. Instantly, oh man, I got to get that next one. Mm. Got to get that next one. Mm. Got to keep. So, on the one hand, we have to protect our, we have to protect our hearts by making sure that the things that uh, draw us away are sort of moved off. Number two, I think we have to remember God is going to take care of us. He's going to give us what we need, and there's a degree in which 
we just want more from time to time. We look around and we say, oh, I want more. Let's be careful, right? I don't think we're going to look down on someone who says, look, I, I should try for that promotion at work because that'll be a better way to provide for my family. I think that I think that makes sense. But we all know when there's a line crossed where we just have to have it and I want it and I'm dying for it and I resent the fact that somebody else has it, mm-hmm. right? The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a sense that contentment is better for us mm. if we can learn to trust the Lord, remove obstacles from our path, and focus on the fact that He's going to give us what we need. It's a, it's a tough place to be when you're, when you're not content. We have trapped Dr. Steven Sanchez in studios to answer questions. (laughs) It'll be all right. Answer correctly. But okay, so Dr. Sanchez. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure, because this one's a doozy. Okay, so how, this is from a listener, how do you view Molinism or middle knowledge postulated by Luis Molina in the 16th century as a possible middle ground between predestination and total human free will? Well, look at the time. Isn't there a weather report? (laughs) Yeah. Nice to see you again. So, so let, let's just start by saying what we're trying to explain here is how does God, what does God know, when did he know it, and how does what he knows work out with what we do? Mm. I mean, this, these are some of the most complex questions about the Godhead, right? We're, we're trying to, literally trying to explain the mind of God here. So th- this is going to be really, really hard. Um, on the one side, the predestination folks might be inclined to say, God has planned everything out. I think this is a bit of a character of predestination, but God has planned everything out and it's all set in order and it's done and that's how he knows it because he's making everything happen. And of course, the other folks on the other side will say, wait a second, God's given us choices and I, my choices are real choices. Like I do something and that, that's real agency. Some people might like to call that free will. I don't like to use that term free will, but you do have a will and you have a choice. Is there a way to to split the baby, so to speak, here, and I cut this down the middle. And the answer, one postulated answer was this Luis de Molina, who suggested God knows not just what you're going to do, but all the other possibilities as well. And so he knows what will happen if you choose A, he knows what's going to happen if you choose B, he knows what's going to happen if you choose C. And you can see how that's an attempt to square God's knowledge and his comprehensive knowledge, right? The God who declares, I tell you the end from the beginning, with the fact that he gives people choices. How do we put those together? Well, God knows what you're gonna do and he knows all the other possibilities that you would have done as well. It's attractive, especially in this age of multiverse theory and all the other Marvel you know, ways we're thinking now. Mm-hmm. Um, is it for sure the answer? Not everybody is persuaded. Some philosophers are, who names like William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantiga, I mean, they would argue this way. <clears throat> I find it attractive. I don't, I don't, I'm not ready to say that is the answer. I I would argue the mind of God is a little more complex than the philosophical theories of his creatures. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hold two poles. One, God knows everything, and the choices we make are real choices. Mm. How those exactly go together might very well be a mystery because of how God works things out and what he knows. He knows all things, and he declares such. And he gives us real choices to make, and we have to be wise and godly and careful because those choices have real consequences. Molina might have a solution, but I'm not sure we're going to solve the mind of God just like that. 
Okay. okay. Yeah, you're hearing the voice of Dr. Stephen Sanchez asking, answering your questions here on Open Line Chat. And uh, Stephen, here's one other question that came in. It said, somebody mentioned to me recently that Jesus had actually done miracles when he was a child. And I asked about which book that was in. They said it was in writings that weren't in the Bible. And they're just wondering, do you happen to know what they might be referring to? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that is, I've, I'm aware that that is out there. It's not in the Bible, of course. We don't see those miracles of Jesus in the Bible. But there are extra biblical sources. Uh, I'd have to look them up. I don't have them off the top of my head. Is it um, the Apocrypha? Are, yeah, well, not in the Apocrypha. No, these would be extra books, like uh, the New Testament Pseudepigrapha, other collections of letters about stories of Jesus that he did when he was a child. He, here's the problem, right? Um, we because we don't have them recorded actually in Scripture, how would we know that they're valid? Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, uh, and if we don't have them recorded in Scripture, did somebody just make them up? We we, we know that people uh, got creative and wrote things down, and the church rejected these writings as non-canonical, right? Did not include them in the Bible um, because presumably they thought they were not trustworthy, not truthful. So there, there are books out there, they're not in Scripture, and we don't find those things in the canon for a reason. Presumably they're not, they're not accurate. It's amazing how little we know about Jesus as a child, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we know that He was born as we move into that season this year, and we're amazingly grateful for that. We see Him in the temple, uh, uh, talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And then we see him starting his ministry, and what a ministry it was. Yep. Okay. okay. And one last. Yeah, one last okay. question. Squeeze this one we... in for you. Um, they said they have a, a question about Jesus being in the line of David, and they're saying technically he wouldn't be since Joseph is his stepdad. So they're wondering what your thoughts are. Well, that's a great question. You'll remember that Jesus has two genealogies in the. Gospels, we see one in Matthew and one in Luke, um, which means that, and they're different. Oh. At, at, at a certain point, they, they diverge. The genealogy in Matthew comes through Solomon, and the genealogy in Luke comes through another son called Nathan. That's, we presume that that's Mary's genealogy. And so this, the usual argument is Jesus gets his right to rule on the throne of David by adoption through his father Joseph, his adopted father Joseph, but he gets a genetic connection to David through his mother Mary, mm. through Nathan. And so Jesus is connected to the throne of David uh, either way. Either way. Yep. So now in Jewish culture, they didn't always... I mean, the, the line came through the father normally, not through the... not matrilineally. Uh, in, culture, in, in the for case, their culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nowadays, Jews today, you'll hear them say it comes through the mother. Okay. But yes, through the father is the way things are usually identified in the Bible. That's right. Okay, but but but, but, but through remember, the mother, the, literally, he, he that's, is. That's exactly right. Through the through, through Mary, literally, because Mary was also of the line of David. That's uh -huh. right. And that and this is important because <clears throat> one of one of David's one of David's descendants. Jehoiakim is the king of Judah, and he was not a good guy. And God punished him by saying, you're not going to have any descendants that will sit on the throne. 
Well, that's mm-hmm. somewhat problematic if Jesus is direct through Jehoiakim, and he's not. He goes through a different line, through one of David's other sons. And so God curses this king and then provides his own solution to that problem. It's a, it's a good, mm. it's, it's a great example of God's knowledge and how he works, right? He can, he can, he can tie a knot and untie it at the same time. Okay. And so, um, so there are lots of different questions that kind of come out about this because it's usually, uh, just through the, the male lineage, um, talking about, uh, the genealogy, but this one is a little bit different. It comes through, uh, through the mother, through the mm-hmm. female, but, uh, something that I've noticed through scripture, um, Stephen, if you could kind of walk me through this really quick is God seems to do it differently than it's supposed to be done. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> he he kind of likes to confound our expectations, right? <laughs> we, we put him in a box and he says, no, not today, Zerg. Like, that's not going to work. Um, and we see that right from the beginning, whether he's picking, you know, an old man like Abraham and his lovely wife, Sarah, who is older and has no children. And he decides, yep, you're going to have an heir. And she laughs. Or it's, you know, barrenness throughout the Bible, and he turns things upside down by making the barren woman rejoice. Or elevating, uh, you know, one child of Joseph, the younger, over the older. Mm -hmm. Or Jacob and Esau, he picks one over the other one. Or he seems to love to to confound the way we normally think. And... Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's God saying, you can't, you, you're not going to put me in a box. box. You're not going <laughs> to make a, a dossier for me and a script that I have to follow. Your human minds are small and you think things are going to work one way. And I have the freedom and the power to make them work another way, a different way, mm. a way that's better for you, a way that brings more glory to me in a way that you just could not understand before. And that's important for us to hear when we're in trouble, right? When we're going through difficult circumstances, when life's not working the way it should work. Imagine Joseph in a prison, and then he had a really good day, didn't he? (laughs) Pharaoh (laughs) says, come up and tell me a dream. Tell me what my dream was. Joseph does it. Next thing you know, he's second in command of the entire Egyptian nation. What a great day. Nobody would have expected that to happen. (laughs) And, And yet God did it. Yeah, Yeah, but God. And Joseph understands that it's God saving people. 